You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Thomas Berceau, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Kaskill and presented by the National Lipid Association. According to current standards, patients with normal levels of cholesterol and high levels of C-reactive protein are not considered at risk for cardiovascular events. Have the results of the Jupiter study modified this standard? Welcome to Lipid Luminations. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, your host. Joining me today is Dr. Paul Ritker, Director of the Center for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and author of the Jupiter study. Dr. Ritker, welcome to the show. Larry, it's a pleasure to join you today. Congratulations on the publication of the Jupiter study. Could you tell our listeners what Jupiter stands for and what it was investigating? Well, Jupiter is a pretty radical idea at one level, and at a public health level, it's really been a pleasure to get these terrific results. The concept of Jupiter was pretty simple. We as cardiologists know that treating high cholesterol patients is very important, and our guidelines have reflected that for the last 30 years. But half of all heart attacks and half of all strokes will occur annually in the United States among people who frankly have average, if not low, levels of cholesterol. And we and others had shown that inflammation was crucial to the development of atherogenesis. In fact, with our Harvard medical students, we now teach atherosclerosis as an inflammatory disease as well as a lipid-based disease. And we had developed the HSCRP blood test as a way to identify high-risk folks, but we didn't know what to do with them except for to recommend diet, exercise, and smoking cessation. So the idea was pretty simple. Let's take a large number of healthy people. They're not really patients. They're healthy outpatients who are doing just fine. What they have in common was a low level of LDL. The average in the trial was only 108. The average HDL on the way in was nearly 50. So these are people with almost optimal lipid levels by any current guideline and clearly would not qualify for statins. But what they had in common was an increased level of HSCRP of value above 2. That was who we captured, and half were randomized to Crestor at 20 milligrams resuvastatin, a very powerful statin for both LDL and CRP reduction, and the other half got placebo. That was really, at one simple level, what we did. So how many people did you take a look at? We randomized 17,802 people with low LDLs and increased CRPs in 26 countries. Fantastic opportunity for me to work with physicians all over the world. We have over 1,000 investigative sites. And these are pretty open-minded physicians who are willing to say, okay, what they want to do is give a powerful LDL and CRP-lowering drug to people who don't even have high cholesterol. So it took a creative bunch of physicians in here in the United States, Canada, and overseas to kind of do this trial. And what were you expecting, Dr. Ridker, before the uh, trial ended? Were you anticipating these robust findings, or were you surprised? We were very surprised. I think we were hoping to see some benefit of giving a statin to patients with low cholesterol and high CRP. I think we would have been happy with a 10 or 15% relative risk reduction just to get a sense that, yes, this biology is correct. Well, what happened was just remarkable. Our independent data and safety monitoring board recommended to the steering committee that we stop the study, even though we were supposed to run for a full five years after an average of only two years because we had a 54% reduction in myocardial infarction, a 48% reduction in stroke, a 47% reduction in bypass surgery and and angioplasty, and perhaps most striking, because it really had not been seen before in the major statin prevention trials, a 20% reduction in all-cause mortality. 
and the significance of the p-value for this was just overwhelming. And I think we felt at the steering committee level after receiving this recommendation that we just could not proceed any further, that we had to let the people on placebo have the opportunity to actually get active therapy. So if we could tease out the data a little more. I like to hear about absolute risk reductions. I know they're never as impressive as relative risk reductions. But could you tell me, you know, in terms of the mortality and and heart events, what the absolute risk reductions were? That's a very important issue. Once we move out of the biology of this notion that, uh uh-huh, treating people with high CRP is highly effective for relative risk reductions, I think once we move this into a practical arena of do we want to do this for classical care, you're absolutely right. We have to talk about absolute risk reductions. There's been a lot of misinformation about this trial, unfortunately, for absolute risk reductions, particularly data in a company editorial that just had calculations made in an unusual way. So let me give you the calculations done by a guy named Bob Glenn, who's the biostatistician for the Jupiter trial, who's a Harvard professor here. The best way we think to look at absolute risk reduction is to deal with the number needed to treat, the NNT, because that captures this for a practical way. We already accept an NNT, a number needed to treat over five years, of a value of about 50. That's the value that's in our NCEP guidelines for treating hyperlipidemic patients in primary prevention. So we already accept an NNT of 50 for, as cost-effective for giving uh, a statin to people with high cholesterol. The remarkable thing in Jupiter is that the NNT over five years is only 25. So the observation was the placebo absolute rate was about 35% higher than the placebo absolute rate of the AFCAPS-TEXCAPS trial done almost a decade earlier without all the advances we made since then. That's what's so striking here is that when you isolate a population who has inflammation, despite having very low LDL levels, it may well turn out to be actually more cost-effective than our current strategies, which, of course, I agree with, of targeting patients with hyperlipidemia. You mentioned a number needed to treat of 25 using five-year extrapolation. And in America, we sometimes get into trouble with extrapolation and derivatives and all sorts of complicated statistical analyses. And so what was the number needed to treat for this particular trial? The manuscript has three numbers needed to treat published in it. There's an NNT at two years, which was the average follow-up period. That's 91. The number needed to treat at four years, which is still actual observed data, was 31, still way below this value of 50. Mm-hmm. And then the one that, as you correctly say, is put out to five years because that's the metric that we use is 25. But what you have to understand is even the NNT at two years of 91 is way below the NNT for treating hyperlipidemia at two years. No matter how you cut this data, it's just a wonderful thing for public health. Well, it's wonderful for public health, but how does it challenge your colleagues that have been part of a religion, the cholesterol hypothesis theory? It does tend to challenge them somewhat. How do you talk to them about this? Actually, I don't think it really does in many ways. One of the most remarkable things about my physician colleague's response to Jupiter is that everyone sees in it the benefit they're looking for. So if you're an LDL reduction believer and think that inflammation has nothing to do with this disease, I think you're actually pretty happy here because we give a powerful LDL-lowering drug. We took people from 100 down to 50, and they did great, and they had large risk reductions. And we saw that taking people's LDLs down to 45 or 50 was safe within the confines of what a trial can tell us. So I think they're actually quite happy. If you see the world through inflammation-colored glasses, as I admit that I do, you're equally happy because we say by targeting people with inflammation, we've demonstrated, if anything, risk reductions larger than what we did by targeting hyperlipidemia. 
at the American Heart Association, it was really a pleasure. I got to meet with a lot of women's groups who deal with disparities in healthcare delivery. We have terrific data here in women. We enrolled almost 7,000 women. The women in our study got the same relative and absolute risk reductions as did the men. We also got to meet with the Association for Black Cardiologies because we had put nearly 5,000 minority patients, black and Hispanic patients, into the trial. They got the same benefit as did the Caucasian patients. And I think those within our community who feel that the only way to proceed is is not on your intuition, but strictly on evidence-based medicine, well, they're very pleased because we have a major trial saying, hey, here's a novel idea, but it really worked nicely. And I'd even go a step further. The people who I think sometimes have been unfairly critical of the statin hypothesis in general, now we have a mortality reduction. So frankly, it's been quite a good thing, I think, for all constituencies. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, your host, and I'm speaking with Dr. Paul Ritker, director of the Center for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And we're talking about the Jupiter study and whether, based upon its findings, everyone in the world should take Crestor or another statin. And that leads me to my next question. Why Crestor, and can you extrapolate these findings to other statins, even though we have not done this specific trial with another statin? We're not talking about statins for everyone. In our pilot, we found that people with low levels of LDL and low levels of HSCRP had extremely low vascular event rates, and there was no benefit of being on the statin, despite a substantial LDL reduction. So first of all, there's many people out there who I think are just not prone to getting vascular disease, and we should let them be. So that would be a cost-ineffective approach to, I think, put statins in the drinking water. You've asked a very important question about class effect. My own research, going all the way back to 1998, uh, demonstrated that pravastatin, simvastatin, lovastatin, three generics, are very good drugs for both lowering LDL and lowering CRP. So all statins lower cholesterol and they lower inflammation, and I think that probably helps explain why these drugs have been so effective. You're right. We studied Crestor or Rezuvastatin at a pretty good dose, 20 milligrams, because we felt as investigators we had basically one shot at this hypothesis, and we should pick a drug that dramatically lowers both LDL and GRP. And now here we are with this very large, unanticipated relative risk reduction and absolute risk reduction that is just simply greater than what we've seen before. It's probably true that all statins would deliver some of this benefit. I think it's also true that more potent statins are going to deliver even greater benefit. Dr. Ridker, what should I do when I go to my office today and I start looking at my patients a little differently? Should I be ordering an HSCRP on everyone? First question. And then our insurance company is going to start paying for that test. We need to let folks read the paper carefully think through how this may or may not affect their practice, and let the people who write guidelines think through how they might want to use this information. You know, we have to make decisions in the absence of guidelines for individual patients, and that's, of course, up to the physician and what they want to do. Our first intervention for any patient who's got an elevated HSCRP is going to be recommendations for diet, for exercise, for smoking cessation. I don't want to give any sense that we think we should undermine the most important preventive issues. The tension in this trial is that despite giving everybody all that good advice, everyone got that advice, we just saw very large benefits with a pretty good safety profile when we gave them an aggressive statin. If we're really looking for things to decrease inflammation, are there things we can tweak naturally in our diet by perhaps eating more 
anti-inflammatory foods, increasing omega-3 fatty acids, exercising more. It's a terrific hypothesis. It's one, however, that we don't have a lot of good data for. I think the best data is what you've mentioned about the omega-3s. I do think the sudden death prevention data for the fish oil approach is quite impressive. I think the fact of the matter is that statins look much more effective. So I do preach healthy diet and exercise, but I think we have to also be realistic about what to expect. On that note, Dr. Paul Ridker of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and author of The Jupiter Study, thank you very much, and congratulations on your findings. Thank you very much. And the people I want to thank are all over the world. To get a trial like this done requires an enormous amount of effort by physicians and patients. They're the ones who really get the credit for this. And again, thank you very much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org.